We think the future is completely private, small group conversations. We've viewed ourselves as an employer as, you know, really in existence for our employees and bettering their positions and their lives and their careers and being a slingshot for them. It's kind of cool to rely on math because we're all in a finite resource bind here. I got to this point where I thought, here is a problem that exists for a real significant set of users where you can solve it with math rather than process and procedure. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, we sit down with Joel Wallenstrom, CEO of Wicker, a secure messaging and communications platform. We learn a bit about Joel's background in the cybersecurity industry with a focus on his time running third-party security firms. From there, we dive into the history of Wicker, which started as a consumer, mobile-first communications tool on the back of perfect forward secrecy. We talk about the process of bringing a consumer product to enterprises with a focus on SSO, on-prem deployment, and enterprise MDM that all mobile-first companies should probably pay attention to. All right, hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, really excited. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. Tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what you've been up to. Okay, so my background is really centered on computer security. In 1999, I got recruited into a job at a company called At Stake, which a lot of people know. I was sort of a fanboy, if you will, of a group called The Loft Heavy Industries. They created a tool called Loft Crack and, you know, actually was surprised and excited to get asked to come work at that company and come out to California and build an office here. And so, and every, so what was at stake, if, for those who don't know, tell us some more. At, at stake was a group of hackers, realistically. And you know the way they really burst on the scene, I think the more national scene is they testified in front of Congress. And mm. you know it's funny, they had like bathrobes on. And the, the general gist was we can drop the internet from our kitchens in 30 minutes. That you know, is oversimplifying the message. But that was a message back you know, in the early aughts that people in our industry were sort of warning that, hey, we're building all these systems, which is great, and it makes things work. But we can also make them not work. Oh, and so um, Battery Ventures actually, I think, you know, got the idea that we could build a company around this set of expertise. And it was ultimately, I mean, Loftcracked was a product. I think a lot of people know Vericode is a product that spun out of this company as well. Oh, interesting. But ultimately, it was a professional services firm. And, and why were you a fanboy? Like, what were you doing that got you excited about this? I just thought it was a contrarian way to look at all of the fun, exciting things that were happening. You know, I, I think it's akin to, I'm sure when people were building railroads and, you know, all these big machines were going east to west, there were certain people who were like, hey, Maybe there's something that we could do weird to the tracks. Or they were looking at all these, you know, kind of nuances around this big economic engine that was being created. And I think this is what, you know, the loft was doing. They were just looking at it from a different lens. And so that's that's a really cool mindset and something that I was always attracted to. Okay, so this is uh, 99, so it's like the like environment is everything, internet and everything, you know, web. And yep. so 
the nation's attention is, is on what's going on here. And so you see this group that's kind of contrarian and has a different perspective right. and you get attracted to it. And then they, they recruited you. How, how did they get in touch with you? Yeah, I just, I knew the CEO and he said, you should come, cool. uh, you know, you should come join us. And, you know, my initial response was, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned in this, um, was there's no way I can't hold the, you know, water for these guys. This is a level of engineering and, and understanding of the full stack beyond anything I'm capable of. But, you know, Look, everybody brings a little bit to the table, and yeah. so um, I was convinced that I could bring something to the table, and it, and it never, you know. And then I fell in love with this whole idea of this contrarian view of technology and understanding that things were going to go to market. And I think we're, you know, we're here to talk about enterprise software, yeah. enterprise businesses, and one of you know that time in that period was interesting. This is when like. Bank of America was thinking, should I have a website? You know, this is this was far beyond. I've got this thing, and I've got to figure out how to make it secure. It was really interesting days because the sapience and the science and the viance and Razorfish is all these companies were kind of raping and pillaging and building the first web property for mm. large organizations. You know, this is a interesting jump into enterprise. And security was a hundred percent afterthought. So they were just focused on eyeballs, right? That was the, yeah, that was the key well, key term back then. And also not being first mover a lot of times. A lot of people were sitting back, and so anyone entering enterprise, you'll see that as well from a customer base. There's all this focus on we need a lighthouse customer, we need someone to take the leap, and then everyone will follow. And I think you know a lot of people in our industry aren't old enough, or we've forgotten that. There was a time not too long ago when nobody was doing anything, quote unquote, online, mm. anything yeah. realistically. And so we've come a long way in a historically short period of time. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so then you were there for how long? Well, I was there for like four or five years, and then we sold to uh, Symantec. And right after that, we started a company called ISEC Partners that ostensibly was doing the same things. But, but we you, were, so you didn't stay at Symantec, you, you left? No it, yellow jumpsuits, I wasn't selling antivirus. <laughs> you know, realistically, that was interesting. And I think a lesson to be learned there is that the acquirers of at stake were looking at this as solely a network security play. Mm. And part of that was what sort of network security products could be pulled on the back end of the expertise. And out here in San Francisco, we had built out what we called our application security center of excellence. And so we were really focused on a completely different layer. Mm. And even in some cases, hardware layer. That was I say that because the world wasn't ready to think those thoughts, you know. So Realistically, our skill set, our passion was at a different place than companies like, say, Symantec or Cisco or McAfee were really even thinking or focusing. And so it was really commonsensical for us to say, we're going to start something that's more focused on the application security layer. If okay. And so then you started ISEC. ISEC Partners yeah. with some friends. And we you know, did basically the same thing. We were helping large organizations understand how to secure their app all of their systems, but really where we were had expertise was in mobile. We did a lot of work on the Android operating system as an mm. example. But you know, at this point there were a lot of, you know, web and or just like when there weren't any websites, there had never been mobile applications. So just easy things like what kind of permissions you give to the phone, that sort of stuff. A lot of companies were jumping in without thinking about how to secure customer data. Okay. And so like I mean describe what one of those engagements would have looked like. So you would be working with Google on Android, and like your team would jump in and be thinking yeah. about it as the like from the security angle. How do we attack this or protect this and in sort of so, threat modeling kind of yeah, stuff? Yeah, I mean that you know, boy, it, it was it was varied, and it really depended upon 
sort of the maturation of the security teams that we worked with. So, you know, a lot of this is public now, but for instance, we worked with Microsoft on their operating systems. And we weren't alone, but they would fill a room full of like 12 security experts who would just sit up there and work on the next release of the operating system. Very waterfall-y, right? You got to think this is in the middle 2000s. And so Agile wasn't a thing. They were doing these huge releases and they would get a bunch of experts to come in and just beat it up. And, you know, this is a company that had spent millions already thinking and engineering around security. Then you might go to another company, even, you know, fast-moving early days Google and around Android, there was no security team. So it was almost like a staff hog where we would come in and be the security experts. But the vast majority of it was, a lot of it was, I'm selling this product to enterprise customers and they've said, they've asked me about security and I've never really thought that thought, can you come in and help us? Mm-hmm. And so that would be some combination of an architectural review. You know, we test for bugs, but at the end of the day, we were you know, 100% successful in breaking things throughout, you know, <laughs> 10 years of doing this. And so it wasn't a matter of compiling. A lot of companies would get tripped into having more bugs than they could squash. And there'd be this big whack-a-mole game rather than really understanding how to deal with the problems fundamentally, how mm. to get their developers to care, those types of things. So we would do everything from threat modeling to training to creating automated processes for people to attract bugs. You know, like, seriously... It was a huge win in the industry when we and companies like us could get access to bug tracking systems. Like, give us Jira and let us actually put security into your process. You know, get it in the water cooler, if you will, so that people cared about it. Not only cared about it, but it was like operationally part of their processes to, you know, put priority on things and squash them. I think a fairly common practice at that point was like, Developers build stuff, and then it like goes to security review, right? Like you know, like well, sure. it wasn't really as integrated as I think oftentimes it is today, where people are trying to like you know develop from the ground up using right. a lot of the same primitives for security. Yeah. So, and this these are things you were probably teaching people, you know. Look, like you think about ago. web properties, and a good example is just input filtering. You know, sure. it didn't exist. Like fundamentally, was not something that anyone who was building things thought about. Yeah, and I brought up mobile applications, like even thinking about what kind of permissions are given to the device or the operating system. You know, that's typically not the goal. I think you have people with big red X's on their calendars in terms of release dates, and they're just pushing for you know, hopefully not MVP, but MVP ish type functionality. And so, you know, unit testing for security. It was not a thought process that existed. So a lot of it is pretty fun because what you're trying to do is stuff like this. You'd have events, you do talks, you try and make it fun and cool and rewarding for people, people being developers, to pull this into their workflow and their lives and their psyche. So that's pretty cool. Okay, so then uh, that was Isaac Partners, and you're you know you were a founder of this company. Yeah. How, like, how big did it get? What was the what was the scale? I think we grew it to about 200 people, right. and then we um, sold it to a British firm. Called the NCC Group. Yeah. And, you know, maybe again, in terms of lessons learned, we, as the partners, you know, there are five of us, we looked at our future and we were going to have to really deploy capital into sales, marketing, go to market. Ultimately, a lot of what we did in that business, we grew it to that size and it was all inbound because mm. what we were doing is our sales and marketing engine had more to do with research and doing presentations at conferences and creating demand via 
being smart. Sure. And there's a cap on that model. We had, you know, we were reaching that point where we're like, well, to continue to, you know, give our employees, we've viewed ourselves as an employer as, you know, really in existence for our employees and bettering their positions and their lives and their careers and being a slingshot for them, which worked. A lot of them are CISOs all over the the world right now. It's a really cool ecosystem. But, you know, we were going to have to become really good at filling the funnel and converting opportunities and becoming more of a sales organization. And that's, you know, that's a thing. Like yeah. you have to be good at that and you have to figure out how to be good at that. And so we looked for help. And it was professional services primarily. Was there yeah. any kind of product, any anything, any technology you were selling in on the back of that? Not so much. Yeah. I mean, there when we required there's some managed services on the back end of that. There were some testing tools. We tended to like to give away tools for free. Okay. Really big distinction for us between tools and products. Mm. And so there was a lot of intellectual property and a lot of automation, and we were really focused on doing that. But in terms of having SLAs and licensing models and understanding how we would go in an enterprise-ready way, go build products yeah. and monetize those and support those. I know we had huge amount of respect for how hard that can be. Mm. And so, yeah, this is that leaping off point where we said, look, we've got all this IP. You can create products. You can create more higher margin, repeatable, orchestrated services, which are kind of like products, managed services, if you will. And so that was the jump to NCC. And so they've taken that and they've run with it. Okay, cool. And so you're then at NCC for a handful of years, right? Right, right, right. And so leading to where I am now at Wicker, yeah. you know, being in security and again, being a fanboy of all the really smart people, there was this concept of perfect forward secrecy, a kind of cryptography that existed on paper and white papers and academia, but it was impractical because it was too resource intensive. Mm. You know, I always like to say, if you were going to do it on a mobile device, you were going to have to carry around a building with you in order to make it happen. But then this you know, sneaky little Moore's Law thing happened, and we started seeing it move into a place where it was practical and real, that the processing on the node, whether that be a laptop or a mobile device, tablet, phone, you were going to be able to have this level of protection. So the way it hit my brain is somebody who had 100% success rate breaking into every single product ever put in front of us. I mean, the main reason we always had success is everything was built to provide access to data. That's how mm. it works. Like at some point that business logic is going to exist such that you can go get it and then you just kind of ride those coattails. That's mm. an oversimplification, but that's a big part of why things are hard to secure. This type of cryptography means the service provider, in this case Wicker, there's mathematical certainty we can't be that weak link. Mm. So, you know, Acme company, we would go test their service and it might be that we were able to get in through a third party or we were able to use business logic to get access to things because the service provider had access to it, as an example. In this case, what I liked, and we, I used Wicker in my business to, you know, we were transmitting zero days and we had really sensitive communications. So rather than use old tools that people couldn't figure out like PGP, I could say to people, hey, there's this thing called Wicker, go to the app store, I'll send you the document that way. And now we can be certain that the people who are processing this data never ever have access to it. It's only on your phone and only on my phone or only on your lap or only on my laptop. So this eliminated very significant attack surfaces that we had always taken advantage of when we were trying to break into systems or when we were hired to get access to critical information. So we're kind of diving back into some yeah. of the backstory on Wicker. So it sounds like you were familiar with the technology because you're not the founder, you're the CEO now, yeah. but 
you were an investor in, in Wicker, right? So right. you kind of knew the the team that was building this, right? And so, what's the full backstory on on Wicker? Like, how did it come about? You're, you're, you're right. kind of telling some of this, but just kind of give us the overview there. Yeah, well, I have a, a sort of unique view on it as a early investor and now somebody who's there full time, and that is, um, again, this type of it became possible. So okay. a lot of what we deal with in technology, I think, is. I mean, it even goes back to what I'm talking about. There was an internet. It was possible to have yeah. a website. So now all of a sudden, this type of different privacy was accessible and available and possible. And so Wicker and another company or another product, Signal, mm-hmm. they, really the two products, Signal does a one-to-one protocol for doing the same sort of quote-unquote perfect forward secrecy. Mm. It's just, think of it as you know, extra encryption. So every single message is encrypted with a new key. Oh, wow. Which was completely impractical 10 years ago, and now it's completely practical. Wicker does the same thing. It just is a group-based protocol, so it's built to do this with groups. Mm. So ultimately, this means that there's an extra layer of protection. If by some means somebody got access to the back end or something, then they get access to one message rather than every message ever sent. So something like WhatsApp, there'll be, there'll be a little bit of a different thing. If you get access to that, now you have forward and backward access to everything that's been sent. In an encrypted format, or is it, is it unencrypted? You just have it because you've already decrypted it. So this concept of perfect forward and backward secrecy means it's a lot like a conference room. If somebody walked in right now, we'd have to bring them up to speed on what happened. And if they left, they wouldn't have access to it after they left. That's a decent analogy for what this type of encryption does. So it's, it adds an extra layer of protection, right? Cool. So I was I was using this and I understood this to be possible and I understood that you know as somebody who batted a 100% or batted a 1000 this would be one of the things that would make us not bat a 1000. Yeah. And so I was really excited about it. I you know I invested in Wicker. I saw I saw Were you were part of the seed round? Were, were, how, yeah, how, I was part okay. of the A round, which okay. was kind of the same thing. Um very early. So, days. so super early this technology becomes possible. You have been in the industry for a while. You probably knew some of the founders and some of the yeah. folks who were working on it. You were like, I want to invest. This seems great. Yeah, part of it was also collegial. I just think this is cool. We've been reading these white papers yeah. forever and I want to support this type of technology getting to market. So mm-hmm. and then and like it's did, the thing you believe in, yeah. like at your core, you're like, I want this to yeah. exist and like I want it so badly that I'll invest to make it happen. Yeah, and I and I think it's an important step forward in privacy. And sure. so that's always, you know, look, when they weren't gargantuan, but you know, we took a percentage of our profits and we in my previous companies and we put it towards things we believed in. Mm-hmm. Some of that was like the EFF and a lot of it had to do with yeah, privacy. I, I think a really important thing is back in the early days of like encryption, I'm just going to say like SSL or TLS or you know, when these sort of things were starting to come to fruition, and we would promote them as possible, and the enterprise typically would say, "Oh no, there's too much overhead. There's going to be latency. There's a performance issue." Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we would have to prove mathematically that no, actually, there's not. Yeah. This is just smart. I know it's a, it might be a little bit of a pain in the ass to change what you've done in the past, but this is better. And yeah. you know, now it's drinking water. And to a certain extent, we're smart enough and fast enough on our nodes to be able to do this. At, at the edge, if you will. And so, you know, I really believe this type of protection should be like drinking water. I think, you know, at the user conference, developer conference this week, you know, Apple sort of said the same thing. Like, yeah. look, we're capable of doing this. It doesn't introduce any sort of performance issue. So we're going to do it. Now, they're doing it because they think they're going to sh- sell more shiny 
phones, <laughs> you know, and, I, and that they should be unapologetic about that. That's yeah, great. Like that's their business model. But the key takeaway for me there is it's possible, it's doable. So let's do it. Yeah. And, you know, when I invested in Wicker, the first thing, and I think this was a very cool thing, it was very focused on journalists and mm. people overseas in hostile environments and, you know, the thickest of the thick tinfoil hat users. Yeah. And, and so that requirement drove the product decisions, which meant it was completely anonymous, which meant that nothing lasted more than seven days a week. And so it was a very smart and appropriate tool for very, very advanced users, mm-hmm. you know, people who understood what a handle was. And then what ended up happening, and the reason I'm here at Wicker is it leaked into the enterprise. But the vast majority of the enterprise doesn't know what a handle is. And the vast majority of enterprise projects last more than seven days. And <laughs> you know, and it turns out a lot of enterprises have these pesky little things called regulators who have data retention requirements and you know the practical realities of using software in the enterprise were misaligned with this heavy, heavy tinfoil hat free messaging app. So the call from the enterprise, when I entered there was already a product market fit in so much as people were saying, I need this level of protection. I just don't know how to build it for the enterprise. Can you do that? And so that's been my task and the team's task over the last two years is to build something enterprise ready. Cool. So then when Wicker first launched, pure consumer oriented, Absolutely. just in the app stores, was there a desktop app at that point too? Or is it no, mainly? No, so it's just a just a mobile app. Just mobile, like, you know, secure way to, to communicate, like, you know, the most secure way to communicate yeah, realistically. Exactly. Yeah. And I think like different you know, there's different rating organizations that always give Wicker like the highest ratings in terms of privacy sure. and security and secrecy. Yeah, yeah. So, well, and, and a really key thing there in terms of the product vision there was it needed to be, it had to be anonymous, mm. which, you know, anonymity being the polar opposite of virality, right? And so there's this other product I mentioned, Signal, where the decision was we want to be viral. You're not going to be anonymous, it's tied to your phone number. So, you know, in fact, if you get it, it announces to everybody, hey, I'm on this thing, I'm using this product. I'm not saying it's a bad decision, but sure. for a certain user group, that was not what they were looking for. They needed to be sort of more of a needle in a needle stack if they were over in a hostile, say, mm-hmm. geography. And so anonymity was a really big, important part of that. Turns out that to deploy in the enterprise, anonymity is impossible. Yeah. You know, I used it in my quote-unquote enterprise usage, but it was a relatively small deployment. And there are definitely customers who've used things like naming conventions around handles and figured out mm. ways to, almost in spite of the, the anonymous product, figure out how to use it in an enterprise fashion. But that's not the goal of the, you know, we have a, a Wicker Pro product that is enterprise. And so it's been all about building things that are required by the enterprise. So it's a pretty big pivot, it's been fun, and it's, you know, a lot of it is helping people understand what their requirements are so we can build them and execute against them. But is it one team builds both products, or how do you think about, yeah. like, okay. Well, great. and that's, that's really important. So there were some surprises along the way, but, you know, we're a 40-person company. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that we needed to do was build effectively so that we could support efficiently. And... That meant getting everything on the same back end, getting everything on the same code base, sharing the same protocol. So we, you know, building and supporting multiple pro it's a slippery slope to really inefficient capital yeah. expenditures. And so that was the first step is to say, we're gonna have different products and different customers, but how do we do this efficiently and how do we make sure that we're not supporting more than we can handle? Okay. And so 
you started to feel this pull from the enterprise, and so that was. And I love the the idea that there's some companies, and you and you know even you would mm-hmm. yourself when you were at NCC, where you were kind of using it in some enterprise ways, but. You saw some patterns people were doing. I love the idea of like they were probably prefixing a handle in order to like make right. it a, you know like an identifiable handle, and so you saw some of this like oh look there's demand from the enterprise. Maybe you know some customers brought use cases to you and said look if we had an enterprise version of this that we could like control like so what are the core features that you added in to Pro to right. sort of make it enterprisey versus consumer? I think it's always really interesting. yeah. So we'll talk about features because that's. That's what you asked, yeah. and there's a, there's another element I'll get to in a second, which in terms of like kind of deployment. But on a feature basis, it was actually pretty stark to us and to our customers that when you're in enterprise software, you're kind of in the software deployment business first and foremost. How mm-hmm. do you get ten thousand people the software? <laughs> yeah, because if you can't get it to them, then it becomes problematic. So SSO became kind of the first thing. Great, right? Like that was the thing we had to do, which. You know that's not a that's not a light lift, and it's it's certainly not a light lift. Also, from a mindset, you know, when you have an organization that thinks we just have to get this thing up on the app store and we're good, that is not necessarily how the enterprise thinks about software and software deployment, and certainly not how IT organizations want to control it. So, really quickly on the back end of that, we were I don't know if we were forced. It was, became obvious that we had to then. So, so when you joined, yeah. what, what, there was. There was no pro offering. It was like we're yeah. going to come in. You probably had you didn't even probably have the idea of like teams where you could invite people to come into a into a workspace or something, right? Yeah, I mean there was a way to basically input into you know you could input handles into a CSV file and yeah. just upload it. Like okay. that was kind of the the thought process. Which I don't have metrics on this, but I, I would say it's probably a pretty standard way to get MVP ish. Okay, um, would be my guess in in the history of deploying software, but. That's not going to work, right? So, like, so, I mean, initially the product was all mobile, right? Yep. So now you at least need like a website or an admin, a, an right? Admin site, so right. an admin site where you can go in and at least upload a CSV. So that's yeah, exactly. like step one: create the admin site, yep. right? Like, yep. okay, now you add some features in, like upload CSV, and then you start moving into SSO or it's a single sign-on, right? And I think um, in terms of the way we looked at the business, you know, what's the line of demarcation, where's the breaking point of uploading CSVs? <laughs> you yeah. know, it's certainly somewhere less than 10,000 people, users. Yeah. You know, and you know, the initial use cases that came to us were we want to offer this to the enterprise. Yeah. So, and Did you have design partners? Like, Did you have early customers that were kind of yeah. like, okay, and so did you talk about who those were or what the use cases were? You know, we're in the security industry, yeah. so a lot of the customers tend to be <laughs> pretty opaque. But you know, big professional services firms, okay. which brings up a really important feature, and that is what we call federation, so the ability to talk outside the network oh, right. is really important. So a lot of what this was, what, you know, where I personally saw Wicker being used before I got to Wicker was threat intel teams across different organizations who wanted to sort of, you know, look, I'm getting this signal. I want to ask if people are getting the same signal. Oh, right. In some cases, there are regulations where people are not supposed to share information with other companies, but they wanted to do so in a manner where they thought it was fast, secure, private. You know, they're trying to fight bad guys in real time. Yeah, so we're we're getting you know this attack from some IP address over here, and it's based in Pakistan, and we got to look at it. And are you seeing the same thing? You know, so like sharing some information in order to collectively battle. Yep. Uh, And so Wicker became a place where those security IT professionals were using right. it and then they're like, okay, well we want to do this at a bigger scale. We need to get the rest of the team on. We need some admin tools yeah. and things. And I'd say, you know, this has been historically 
common. IRC was something that was used in the sure. past. You know, certainly people use Wicker now. They use Signal. There, there's always been this desire. One of the really cool sort of gratifying things about the security industry is you hear people say like, you only have to be not the slowest. You know, if eBay wants to be a little bit more secure than Amazon back in the day or whatever, you know. But at the same time, as much as there was competition, you know, we're all helping each other. Sure. And so you'd see competitive financial services firms, you see competitive e-commerce firms, you know, really sharing information and especially maybe not at a CISO level, but the people who actually do work and get stuff done who are in the trenches are always talking to each other. So they would use tools like this to do that. So an important part was not just to deploy this to my folks, but give me the ability to allow people to talk outside to whether it's lawyers or threat intel firms or whomever that they may need to talk to. Okay, yeah, and you're saying by working with professional services teams early on, by default, those teams are working with lots of different groups across, you know, clients. Yeah, clients, right? right. And and then you know, third party teams as well. And it's like they have both clients and contemporary sort of like you know, people they collaborate with, right? Yeah. So in my days, if I was sending a message saying, "Hey, we found a zero day in the thing, mm-hmm. and you need to patch this," right? You don't want to do that in email. Yeah. Like you just can't, right? An analogy to that is, hey, we think the price on that company you want to buy, you know, you think about corp dev and people doing deals, Mm. same thing. Oftentimes there's software built for that that's just really flimsy and terrible. And so they would turn to these products to basically have really secure conversations about really meaningful projects that were going to have impact on market cap. Mm. And if you're a professional services firm and you're emailing those documents internally or externally, you're just exposing things to people who want to benefit from that information, right? Oftentimes that can be nation states, but it doesn't have to be. There can just be people who are smart and understand that sitting on deal flow is a really good way to make a a nickel if you're smart about it, right? Yeah, sure. So that's another way that if you're like a large professional services firm or say like an investment bank or something, something law firm, you know, um, prevent insider trading information from leaking to people that might use it. Yeah, elsewhere. so an enterprise requirement was SSO, but very rapidly we then needed to accommodate things like two-factor authentication, mm-hmm. mobile device management, the types of things that are just you know inherent to the way that company handles software. But also, once we started talking to lawyers, you know there are real needs to keep things certainly more than seven days. And sometimes Mm. for longer, there might be a regulatory need. So the real trick and the thing that we've done that's very unique in the market is we've given people the ability to essentially proactively enforce data deletion and retention policies. Yeah. So going back to that core principle is we never have access to it. So the service provider isn't saying, okay, cool, you want to retain this? We've got this for you. We flip the bits, you know, we make the data transfer happen, but ultimately they always maintain ownership. So if something needs to be dropped into cold storage encrypted for regulatory purposes, they can do that. They can keep it and keep it protected. And we, the service provider, never provide an attack surface, which is pretty cool. Yeah. I think about this a lot in terms of like how do you secure data and do it well. Because the the other solution that the enterprise tries to bring in Box and Salesforce to talk about is something they call, they call enterprise key management. Right, and this is basically where like the enterprise like has a HSM, so hardware security module, yep. and then they create unique keys. And then the trick is that the SaaS hosted services like Salesforce or Box can make a request at HSM and get a new key to like right. basically decrypt all your information. And so for some 
cached amount of time, they have all your data in an unencrypted fashion. And you know, in memory, all of the data is unencrypted. So like they right. could log it out incorrectly. And so they have access to unencrypted data. Right. I always say it's kind of like that shell game, right? So where you're moving a, right. you know, it's like, you no, know, that you still have to trust the vendor. And in your case, right, with Wicker, like you're like, no, there's like we provably you don't have to trust us. Right. Like we carry the encrypted bits to and from, but like we can't ever see them. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't think necessarily this idea of centralized key management is one hundred percent all bad, but you've you've nailed it. Like yeah. there's at some level, you know, it requires management, it requires human oversight. It it's kind of cool to rely on math. Like that was my thing. Is yeah. like I got to this point where I thought, here is a problem that exists for a real significant set of users where you can solve it with math rather than process and procedure. Right. I love that. And that's cool. When yeah. you can do that and when you can simplify that and deploy really smart resources to other problems. Because we're all in a finite resource bind here, you know, and so yeah, I I like the simplification of this. I think people are moving really fast towards trying to figure out how to move that shell game and make that as fast as possible. And I get that because when you architect a system that is reliant upon that, you're kind of forced down that <laughs> yeah. strategic path. And so you know, that's I, I get it, but there's a point at which simple is good. Yeah, and so that's what we're doing. That's really cool. You said something that was really interesting, and, and, and I'm going to dive into it if you can. Mm-hmm. So MDM, which is mobile device management. Right. So I think you're the first person we've had on that's really been a mobile first enterprise software company, right? Right. And that's I think you'll you see more and more of that. Like these, you know, these all these apps are really like mobile oriented. And so talk about what MDM is. Like what what sure. is it? How do you do it? What's the value it brings? How well, do you deal with it? Okay, I mean that's. Pretty nuanced because um, I do think that there is a population of security experts out there who is seeing diminishing returns on this concept of Mm. mobile device management. However, for anyone who wants to get into the enterprise with anything mobile, it's a requirement. So what it is is mobile device management. You, via MDM as an IT shop, can manage what does and does not get onto the mobile device. Mm. So you're controlling what software exists and you're you're it's kind of like a whitelisting blacklisting of things on the device. I'd look at it that way. So and this is like built into the operating system. So iOS and Android have native MDM or do well, you use a third party MDM? So there you go. Or? Like that's the really interesting question, right? Like most it was always third party. You can think, you know, there's almost this this branding thing that's BlackBerry good. So, okay. you know, good software was mobile device management. It was on Blackberries and so people you know, think about it as being one thing, but it started off as two separate things. But just like antivirus, I mean, antivirus, you know, is kind of dead because Microsoft and Google and people are just saying like, we'll do this native to the operating system. It is very much becoming more and more native to the mobile ecosystem, if you will. So yeah, iOS will, you know, you can control what software is on your devices. You're not going to need a third party going forward. So you're seeing MDM software getting baked into the baked in, yeah. getting acquired. I mean, I think this is sort of however, it's this in a lot of cases, sometimes unwieldy legacy software that, you know, large enterprises, once they go through the process of getting something working, they're pretty anti 
unplugging it and yeah. you going with some other process. So it'll be around for a while. And there, so one of the things that's a challenge for us is we go to Acme company and they're using one MDM provider. We're going to Backme and they're using another. And, and so what's the product? What, what, what do you as an application developer, is it like shipping to a different app store? What's the difference from your perspective when you're developing? Is yeah, it like- I mean, ultimately from a process standpoint, what matters to us is there will be a team ostensibly in the IT organizations that's responsible for it's not whitelisting, but you know, having MDM accommodate this software. So we have to basically be accommodated. We have to go through that process, and and this will there'll be some vetting. Like, have we looked at these guys? Has there been a security assessment? Do we have approvals? What have they gone through the chain of command to be approved? And then we have to basically, you know, essentially give them a build, quote unquote, that accommodates you know their mobile device management. Strategy, okay. if you will, and so maybe you have to like build specific SDKs into your apps for these different platforms. Yeah, like they're hooks. I mean, like it's it's all APIs. been it's not, okay. yeah, it's an API. So it's usually some IP. standards that yeah. you, as a application developer delivering a mobile application, need to like sort of have like probably expose some endpoints in your application and hook yep. into some things. And so here's a good analogy on the SSO side. There's something yeah. called OpenID, which is an right. industry standard to say. So people have looked at this and said, man, it's crazy to have to go through this process for 100 different MDM providers or SSO, whatever. Let, let's come up with some industry standards. And so oftentimes you can lean on something like OpenID to say, hey, look, we understand that you need us to accommodate your software security strategy that includes SSO or MDM, whatever the case may be. You know, we write to these open standards, we can do this. Usually that's enough. I love this. I mean, the whole point of Enterprise Ready, right, is to provide like the guidance and insight into the features you have to deliver as an enterprise software company. And like, I just hadn't really thought about it from mobile side, really, even though, interestingly, my previous company was in the mobile sort of uh, enterprise space, but we were an SDK, so we weren't actually delivering an app to the App Store, we were just delivering uh, an SDK that you could build into any app. But I think this idea, like if you're going to build a mobile first enterprise software company, well, like you need to understand how to integrate with MDM and do that as like that. You're basically saying it's a core requirement. You're like not going to get very far without doing that. The alternative is that you are shadow IT. Yeah. Okay. Right. And and that runs a little contrary for our go to market because ultimately what we're saying to the enterprise is you've got this shadow IT problem. You know, one of our financial services customers took, you know, and this is this goes to that who's going to jump first. You know, none of the other banks were really doing anything other than turning a blind eye to the fact that mm. consumer apps like WhatsApp and WeChat and Wicker and Signal existed, right? Like all of those things existed out there, but we're just not going to have a point of view on it because we're not ready to have it. And then they were doing real, there's real deal flow going down on WeChat. So they're sitting back looking at this saying, wait a second, people are using their own devices to do real commerce. I mean, significant deals for our large, large organization on a product where we have no access or control, but the Chinese government does. Yeah. And that's not a sustainable place for us. So what are we going to do? We have to deploy something to... As an alternative, to, 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 pro- yeah. to provide the same functionality, but within the control and purview right. of the enterprise. And the key, the really interesting hard thing here is that when they deploy something and they say everything is being watched and recorded, 
then they're kind of squishing the balloon and sending people back to WeChat. So what we do is we give them a hybrid approach to say like, hey, look, Grant wants to talk to me, his employee, about a healthcare issue. You know, there, there mm. are rules within our organization where some things are completely private and we'll never have access to them because we're using a service provider that never has access to it. However, if we're talking about something in a regulated deal or a regulated part of our business, we're going to turn on retention because, and we're going to show you, we're going to signal that to you in the UI. There's no surprises. Mm. We're having an honest conversation with you. That has to be retained. And if you don't provide that hybrid approach, you just keep doing this thing where you're like, here's a secure thing, but we're watching everything. And then smart people in your organization are like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to trust that because now I love my IT guys, but they're, they're going to leave a hole. Right. And so I can't let our adversaries get access to that. So I'm going to go use this thing out of the app store and it just keeps fluctuating back and forth. We're attacking this from a very different standpoint than people have in the past, which is I have to give you this as much as MDMs a requirement. You know, I think uh, I saw a study where 60% of titles at Citibank have compliance in them. <laughs> right? So, you know, people are not, the enterprise does not say, I don't care about the regulators. Yeah. If they're regulated, they care a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, giving a, a solution, that's a, that was a really big requirement. And then I think that the thing that surprised me most, the other requirement I wanted to get to was, you know, I, my day one, I was like, okay, we are not going to deploy on prem because that'll be too hard. And day two, I was like, okay, yes, we are. Because <laughs> all the signal from the customers who care the most about real security have requirements, whether regulatory or otherwise, we've got to deploy on-prem, you know, or in our own cloud or whatever. They're, they're, you know, they can't just go and stick a thumb in the eye of the people who regulate their industry. And so, you know, day two, we were trying to figure out how we were going to containerize our software. Yeah. Uh, and that had never been done before. Um, oh, wow. By us, and yeah, so yeah. or by really many of our employees. So that in and of itself, I know that's near and dear to your heart. But yeah. that, that is a um, you know that's a thing. I, I can remember kind of just sitting back and thinking, oh well, I didn't think about this. How are we going to do this? And how are we going to do this in a in a manner that forty people can still live and breathe while yeah. delivering and software to their their customers? Yeah, it's one of those things. I think. Uh, my previous company, I mentioned we were in enterprise software, and I didn't get it. I didn't get on-prem. I thought everything would be multi-tenant SaaS. And then as soon as I started to really understand security, and I was actually a pain in the ass to our security right. guy. Like I was using shadow IT. That was, that was right. the worst. And I started to like understand a little more. Like, oh wait, we use GitHub Enterprise. Like, why is that? Well, because like you know, all this data would go unencrypted in GitHub, and it's like, what's well, like okay when you don't want that? And so I started to sort of understand it a little bit, right. and I was like, oh man, I was an asshole. I think I actually apologized to our former <laughs> security leads. I was like, I'm sorry for right. like, you know the transgression, my former transgressions. Yeah. But then yeah, then we we figured out that hey, software can be deployed on prem. There's a bunch of new technologies that, that are emerging, Docker and Kubernetes and all these things that just make it so much easier than it would have been, you know, 10 years ago. So, right. yeah, and we've been stoked to work with your team. They're super smart. They've been incredible. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, the, the team at Wicker, I just am enamored by. It's yeah. been so lucky to work with them. They're all very smart people. This is not what we were used to delivering though, right? And so the, I think the first board meeting I had, I said, "Look, you know, we're approaching this problem like we're um, restocking a, a Coca-Cola machine when ultimately our customers want us to launch a space shuttle. Yep. You know, this is, it's a very complex, important process. I mean, we have customers that keep a lot of people alive. So, you know, all of a sudden we got thrust into this niche where we had to deliver 
really important software to really important customers, and we'd never really containerized something before and, and given them a build. You know, we don't even touch the environment in which it's, we never see it, we don't know anything about yeah. it. So it's a really, I mean, part of it was scary and a lot of it was invigorating to say, like, this is going to be hard. So, you know, I think we were, you know, we were weeks in terms of getting releases out. And I mean that going back and forth with the customer and with the help of you, I mean, we're to 15 minutes, 10 minutes. I mean, we can get this done fast. Yeah. And I think, you know, a testimony to what Replicated does is, you know, the market mandated this. So this is what happens, right? Like people can have visions of grandeur of it's all going to be multi-tenant and the world should just drink from this, this cup of goodness. But the reality is enterprise has to do certain things. And so there's a huge void for companies like Wicker to say like, well, how do we do this? You know, how do we use Kubernetes to make this a company that can stay 40 people rather than be 200 people you know, kind of flipping process, if you will. And it's been, so it's been really, really impactful. And the coolest thing is to watch our customers on the other side. You mm-hmm. know, it's release time and they've gone from like, oh, here we go again, <laughs> to this is cool. This is great. All right, I, I know that I'm going to be able to get something that's predictable. I'm going to get it out there. It's going to deploy. It's not going to be a huge suck of my, of my resources. And we can get on to kind of doing our important work. Yeah, focusing on the enterprise IT admin and trying to make their life easy has been, no one really thinks about them, right? Like you think about end users because you want end users to have a great experience. Right. And so people build for that. But the IT admin is often a little bit ignored. And so we wanted Absolutely. to just like deliver something that would be a really pleasurable and great experience there. So, well, look, they're ignored and they're human. And yeah, exactly. all of us, what we really like a lot are our W 2s and our weekends. Yep. <laughs> you know, and if you give them a process that is destined to be, off schedule and viewed as not successful, that sucks for their W2. It also sucks for their weekends. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I, you can't, everything's not just down to W2s and weekends, but I think about that a lot in terms of our enterprise customers and the people who are responsible for deploying and managing the software. If we don't make their lives easier, yeah. Then you know that's difficult because there's a whole like train of software products just waiting to make their lives more difficult. Yeah, you know this is actually one of the things I, I love about enterprise software in general is it's like you can deliver great experience, and we spend so much time working, right? Like this is what we do with you yeah. know forty to eighty hours of our weeks are spent like in an office doing work, and we deserve software that and like the tools. That are going to be great, and that are going to be easy to use, and they're not going to be the cause of our pain. Right. And so, you know, when we get to come in, and the thing that I think you said too is, is acknowledging when you're talking about the sort of the difference between, yeah, you'd have to like jump between a secure app and a non-secure app, and you're using both these, right. right? Like this, like mix of the company provided app that was totally monitored versus like now they go to some consumer app that was totally secure. What Wicker did is just acknowledge that the world is not black and white, but it requires shades of gray. Right. And sort of by providing a solution that allows for the shades of gray to exist, what you're doing is you're really making like everyone's lives easier and better, right? And they yeah. can get better work done, and they can you know actually meet the compliance requirements. You know, because I mean, compliance is serious. Like you go to jail if you yeah. you know if you do it wrong. Right. So it's fun to do that stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know the sort of anti-sales pitch on that for Wicker a little bit is I do think we make people's lives easier, but you, you brought up a really good point. You have to have a point of view in terms of what those shades of gray are, 
right? So one of the things that's, that's been very interesting in the enterprise is, you know, we say like, hey, look, this is actually mathematically certain enforcement of your data retention and data deletion policies. Mm-hmm. And when people don't have them, it gives, you know, to a certain extent, there are some customers who kind of look back at us and say, Oh yeah, I've been meaning to get those data retention and deletion policies. <laughs> you know, and and but that's important. And that's why it's a really I think that's one of the things that I'm enjoying about this is we can go in and say, like, all right, look, you know, take a deep breath. It's not that hard. You have them, they exist. Everyone has some set of information governance policies. Yeah. So use this. It can help you enforce those. And yeah, maybe you do need to be a little more mature in terms of data segmentation and understanding, you know, how data is going to be handled. But, you know, the alternative is right now people are just handling data in one way. There's just one fashion. And maybe, maybe they go back and they try and retroactively enforce some viewpoint or shade of gray or policy on data. And that's not a winning process here. We're, we've got to understand, and, and organizations are, I think, you know, are going to be, we're seeing GDPR do this. I mean, obviously what FTC just did to, Facebook, although really that's not even big enough or enough, you know, the downgrading of Equifax, we're starting to see regulators come in and say, we're going to increase the liability uh, for you neither having a point of view nor enforcing it. Mm. And so, again, going back to that ease, I think what we're, you know, I know what we're doing is we're giving a technology to IT shops and compliance shops to say, we can deploy this and we can go back to a regulator and say, no, it maps exactly to our policies. Now, you may tell us we need to change our policies, and that's fine, and then we can change the way we deploy this thing. But we have something that's enforcing this, and so we're being as responsible with the data as we can be. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's, it's like both, right? Like The funny part is there's some requirements that you need to keep data for a long time, and right. there's some requirements that are like, no, we need to like get rid of it you know, faster, right? And, yeah. You know, because it's sensitive, and you don't want to actually have it around, and so to be able to enforce on both ends, I think, is really cool. Well, and and then you know, the key here, I think, in a lot of cases, is where it's retained, right? It doesn't have to be on the endpoint. It doesn't have to be stored locally. Yeah. There's no reason why it can't just be pulled down and put into cold storage. You know, there's a lot of. So one of the things that's that I brought to Wicker, from an experience standpoint, is. As I was sort of wrapping up the career in the professional services world around security, it was the advent of email retention policies. Mm. And I, you know, we would go and say, "Hey, you should probably not retain everything forever, server side or certainly on the on the client." Like, and so we would enforce these thirty day, sixty day email retention policies. And invariably, there were executives who'd yell and scream and say, "I can't, I can't do my job if I don't have access to all the old stuff." Because it was a change, and it was like a really scary change for them. And ultimately, all you had to say was, oh, no, we've got it. It's somewhere. If you you think the world's going to crumble if you don't get access to the thing, we've got this thing air-gapped, and I'll go through that process with you to get it. And it was just that assurance that made people like start to operate down the path of this retention policy, and then it just died down. Nobody cared. They started operating in a more secure fashion. You know, the non-Podesta fashion, if you will, right? And mm. so that's one of the things that we're doing as well. We're saying, you know, they, they look at a tool and they're like, well, wait a second, this stuff is gone after 90 days or a year? What if I need to go back to look at those deal terms in seven years? Or what if the regulators want to? And, you know, you just air gap it. It's just gone and mm. it's encrypted. And, and more than anything else, I'm going to go back to it. 
Wicker never has it. So the one thing that you can eliminate yeah. is that that is a service provider. That's an attack service that is just completely eliminated. Yeah. So again, that's different. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The regulatory environment's always really interesting, right? So I think the stuff that we've seen with GDPR and with you know the California Privacy Act yep. and some of these other ones, it's just making people more aware that like data is, we always thought about it as an asset, but it's also really a liability. Right? Yeah. For anybody that has it, you have to, to understand how you're storing it and what you're doing with it because we just see constantly that people mishandle this data. Right. And so one of the ways to not mishandle data is to not keep it. Right. Right. Now, look, I think historically people have been tuned into that, but if you go to someplace like Google, you know, if you have like a data balance sheet, the upside it's more of an asset than it is a liability. Sure. You know, they get a $57 million slap on the wrist, you know, related to GDPR this year, and it's a celebration. It's like, oh my God, th- that is the least punitive thing we could have ever imagined. Yeah. Now, I think there's every indication that you're seeing that liability increase. And mm-hmm. so, again, just like these are smart business people. I think this metaphor of the data balance sheet is a real thing. As liability starts to increase, mm-hmm. they're going to look at this and say, like, well, wait, there is a risk to keeping everything. Yeah. And, you know, I always use the example of Netflix doesn't need to know, or, or really, I don't think they want to know that Joel Wallenstrom watches Gilmore Girls on Tuesdays, <laughs> you know, and I'm a, a Gilmore Girls fan. <laughs> They do want to know that for a very short period of time so they can aggregate it with all the other data and make really smart, informed decisions. But there's, it immediately starts to carry liability as soon as there are proper nouns and locations and mm-hmm. you know anything that can be attributed as a breach in privacy is going to become a thing for them. And yeah. so I'm not saying the data is not important. I'm just saying keeping it forever and the liability is starting to increase. So you know, that's the hypothesis here is that that liability is going to, as you know, I mean, look, Elizabeth Warren wants to break up companies realistically on the, on the basis of their irresponsible data protection processes. I mean, at least that's part of it. There's a competitive aspect to it as well. Yeah. But that starts to look like real liability. Yeah, it's true. So kind of going back to something interesting you said earlier, you mentioned that like one of the things that, that you do at Wicker really is around federation, right? And I think in kind of talking around the same concepts, we're really excited about a new technology in the federated machine learning space, right? So TensorFlow just announced yep. TensorFlow Federated. They did a really great like cartoon the comic strip about like yep. what federated machine learning. I thought was like I actually learned things from it. <laughs> but I think this is a really interesting, exciting technology because basically what it does is it allows you to to actually have machine learning that is learning from all this data, but the data never has to leave the different devices. Right. So like you can keep it all locally in Wicker and you could learn how to actually, you know, know predictive text and stuff, right? Sure. And then once it's learned, then you send up these learnings to a server where they're further anonymized through some crazy techniques sure. that I learned about. I was like, why well, they basically they mix in some zero sum stuff in order to right. like never have the data actually be raw in itself. But like when you add it all together and aggregate it all together, it like it zeroes itself out, and so you get the real, like the real patterns, and then you learn from it, and then you send down like new algorithms to all the devices, and you sort of keep learning right. in this way, right? But this is a really interesting technology. It's truly privacy preserving, right? It's like you never have to centralize any of the data, so you you can you know you're never sending right. anything but totally encrypted data through a server, 
but on the devices, you can have true AI and, and ML. Right. And so, you know, there'll be voices who say or would, would have said, yeah, but why do you even go through that process if nobody cares about protecting that data? And I think, you know, this is a signal to you are not going to have access to markets if you don't treat data the right way. Yeah. And so that's what's really punitive. I mean, I. Some of what GDPR is trying to accomplish, and you know, even this idea of antitrust, I, I don't know that I'm, I buy into that. The real penalty is not giving access to a market. And so it's almost like the, the serial data abusers have an anklet, you know, an ankle bracelet that doesn't <laughs> let them out of the, the sort of I'm going to abuse your data house. And they can't, you know, like the most damaging thing that can happen now. So something that, you know, I take a, I don't know if I take pride in it, but I, there's validation in Mark Zuckerberg saying, we think the future is completely private, small group conversations. I mean, that's what we are doing. That's yeah. what we've been doing forever. And so, again, I don't think that's philanthropic. I think he sees from his data what customers want down the line. And people ask me if I'm worried about that competitively. And quite honestly, like we talked about earlier, we're all in this for privacy. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I think that is a genuine statement, and I welcome more and more organizations providing that level of privacy. But if people are just making that an advertising campaign and kind of lulling the enterprise or the consumer or whomever into this false sense of privacy, then I think there needs to be an ankle bracelet. I think that's where regulators could come in and say, no, no, you know, you've defined yourself as somebody who abuses data. And so consumers or enterprises can make their decision to work with you, but you can't go out and advertise that you're protecting data because there are, like we're doing, or like Apple has you know, is doing. There are ways that you can do this mathematically, and if you're not using those techniques, then realistically, you're not protecting it. Yeah, it's it's interesting too because some of these things, you know, I think TLS is a great example. It's kind of thing that people can grok pretty easily. Yeah, where the end user experience is the same. Like yeah. you just like go to sites and it all looks the same as if it's encrypted or unencrypted, right. or, you know, in, in transit. So you don't really know that it's happening, and it, but it is protecting you. It's kind of like behind the scenes. And so these these things that are happening behind the scenes. Like it's almost like it's it's too seamless, right? And it doesn't, you know, like oh wow, like like Wicker feels like any other chat, which is good, right? But it's doing so much more in the yeah. background, right? And so the thing that you know I love about like the TLS, I think has done some interesting stuff. Just even if it's little, right? The browsers built in the little locks and the green and the different color, right? And so like there's ways to sort of show that you know, hey, like this is encrypted or like you know, and, and just. The idea that you know the devices or the client need to display something a bit more like abruptly to let you know that hey, like you're actually sending unencrypted data, yeah. you know, beyond right. Like there's stuff I think that can that will come together to help make this more obvious. But it's one of these interesting challenges where you're like, well, we made it so easy and so good. Yeah. So look, this is a really important aspect, and so for I think people listening to this who are trying to build products. You know, UI UX matters a ton. And so, some anecdotal experiences I have that are right in line with what you're talking about. Before my Wicker days, I got access to, you know, we did a lot of work with Google and there were some security focused UI people. And you talk about the lock, you know, they, they do focus groups and they're like, oh, I like that shopping bag. (laughs) <laughs> because you know like it's so the point being it's really hard and nuanced you got to understand that you're going to have to get that feedback we did this thing and ultimately i'm responsible for this misstep and that was 
one of the things that we understood from our customers is they liked the fact that we went to extra measures to essentially remove data from the device, to shred it. Like mm. We called it Shredder. And there were multiple layers of shredding. And we figured out how to do it faster. And so my thought process was, well, let's just give everybody maximum shredding. We'll just build it into the product and we don't have to take up that UI space you know, or that decision-making tree for the consumer to be like, do I want to shred? On what frequency do I want it? We're just going to be the world's best at this and we're going to bake it into the product. The second we took out optionality around shredding, people were freaking out. You know, what they were saying is, I like to push the shredder button. Mm -hmm. That makes me feel comfortable. That gives me a sense of security. You know, and we would respond and they would typically, you know, via Twitter, via customer service, we'd say like, oh, we're just doing that for you. And they would, they would ultimately say like, well, that's great, but I'd, I yeah. kind of want to see it happen. I'd rather do that. So, you know, that's something that we constantly, you know, do the messages used to burn. Like they literally, they would like, they, we would have animation of fire or smoke. Yeah. And, and we didn't think that was very enterprisey. <laughs> and I think ultimately the data we get back from the enterprises, they're right. Like we don't necessarily need that, but there is still a population in those enterprise customers who are like, I kind of thought that was fun. Yeah. Can you make the things explode again? So, there's an interesting balance between, you know, building products and building products that do things well and how you engage with the customer and how you engage with the consumer versus an enterprise customer. It's, it's very nuanced and important. Yeah, it's this interesting balance because when you add enterprise in, now you instantly have like not just an end user, but like all these intermediate users that could be anything from the admin to the IT admin to the exec. You right. know, and so you have all these different layers. And ultimately, the end user, like you want them to use the product and love the product. Yep. It seems to be the you know consumerization of IT. You know, but they don't always write the check. Yep. So right, you got to like sometimes the it's the CFO is like, why do you make these you know this animation? <laughs> it seems and you're like, okay, so we'll pull it out. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, it's like you the know, user base is like, no, yeah. something that we've done at Wicker over the last you know year and a half, two years is um. Again, I talked about it being the most tinfoil hatty product. And so one of the things was there was a promise. You know, we, we did this thing from the very beginning. And this is, this is a very different way to look at security, I think, for a software company. We did something called security promises. Hmm. And I'm going to get to what we're talking about here in a second. But that ultimately meant that we were going to say, all things being equal, we're going to make these promises. And there's, it's going to be very binary. We protect your data, and we're saying we protect this data because we're making this assertion that we encrypt things in this place. Let's just say, you know, using an example. And that is a verifiable statement. So we have third parties come in to verify that we're doing the thing that guarantees that we are keeping that promise. And so we make all of these promises so that we don't have to have a 50 pen test for every customer to come in, right? So we're placating that enterprise user and, and what their requirement is on a security basis. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the end user is telling us what they want. And it also doesn't mean that we can't listen to that end user. So part of the real tinfoil hat was we'll never get signal back from the clients as to what button's being pushed. Right. Right? Like if people are pushing the shredder button, they don't really care if Wicker knows that. Like that is not an invasion of their privacy. And, and we're going to tell people we don't think that's an invasion of their privacy. And we're going to be very open that we're going to look and see what buttons are being pushed so that we can 
accentuate those features for them. Sure. But I think in the sake of privacy, originally we were like, the hypothesis is we'll never know what anyone's ever doing with the product and we're going to build a good product. And boy, is that, you know, talk about running into a forest with a blindfold. That's a tough one, yeah. right? So sometimes there's too much security, right? Like you have to be objective about this and say like, I need to be able to go talk to the customer and see what the customer's doing. You know, if they ever came back to us and said, I don't want you to know that we're, you know, using this feature, then, you know, we could always change. But ultimately, that's what they want. They want to have that conversation with you. And I think you don't have to, in our case, that doesn't make their communications any less secure. It doesn't make their file transfers any less secure, their video conferences. It does none of those things. If we know that everyone is doing screen share, and that's the most important thing for them, then we're going to keep innovating around screen sharing, right? Yeah, that's it's so it's it's a nuanced balance though, right? Yeah. Like because you know you you don't want to pull out too much information. Right? Yeah. Obviously, like there's a hard line around any of the content, but like okay, how about the length of every message, right? How about the size of files? Like there's different things yeah. that you're like, well, like that's actually be useful. So we know if we need to do larger file transfer size, right? You're like, but you're like, well, I don't want to. You know, yeah. So so then you end up just like incrementing it. You know, like okay, let's just do categories, right? Is it anything? Are people trying to send stuff over? Five megs or something, right? right? And you start to to balance it back and forth, but there's a lot of thought that goes into deciding yeah. that. Yeah, and you know, it's funny for a very secure company that basically says we're not going to give people access to information. We're really rooted in transparency, in terms of like how we <laughs> communicate with our customers. Yeah, getting it 100 percent right is impossible, but what we can always do is be 100 percent transparent with everybody in terms of how we deal with these issues. Yeah. You know, and, and going back to enterprise software, for people out there who are trying to understand how to build products, you're never going to build a secure product you know, that's going to meet everybody's criteria for security. But have a process, be honest, be open, and show that you have the ability to fix things fast and you have the inclination to not snake oil people. Mm. And I think that's going to end up really ultimately in the, in the enterprise sales cycle when that type of approach hits their team who's doing the evaluation, that matters more than perfection. Yeah. Because perfection, you know, especially in anything that's even remotely agile, who cares what it looks like Tuesday the 4th at 3 o'clock, right? You have to show that you have a process and an organization and a will to continue to kind of push the envelope and do the right things and communicate it honestly with the, the customer. So what we do is... We just don't want to surprise anyone ever. Mm. Like that's a bad business for us to get into. We are in the trust business, so we want to be really really transparent with our customers about everything we do. And if we ever do something if if for some reason all of our customers say it's untenable for us that you know that we're using your product to make video conferencing calls, then we can change. We just really commonsensically don't think that's a problem. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. Joel this has been amazing. I've, I've loved the conversation. I could ask you a million more questions. I could, we'd go on for hours. Well, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, we'd, I'd love that. Uh, but before we go, yeah, I just think it's it's really interesting to hear how CEOs kind of like do the elevator pitch. Like, what's the pitch you give that you know one, two minutes, whatever you want to do? Just like tell us sure. what Wicker does and kind of your words. I just think it's really interesting to hear. Okay, so Wicker takes a different approach to data security, in so much as we are a service provider that never, ever, ever mathematically certainly has access to any of the information that's being transmitted on our platform. 
And that's very different type of security that can be offered to customers who, you know, typically really care about this and have big either corporate market capitalization risk associated with being quote unquote owned by adversaries or let's just say their their lives are on the line. So it's a different way of transferring data. When we first looked at this as a as a need, what we saw was communications. And so what we do is we provide messaging, team collaboration, channels, groups, video conferencing, file transfer, anything that you can imagine in a in a communication or collaboration product that is completely secure. This is oftentimes used to replace, say, email or other virtual collaboration products, but it's also used as a complement. We view this as something where um, we're very focused on integration, so our customers build integrations into, say, like Slack or into other products so that they can secure the conversations and still use other products as well. Something we haven't talked about that's really key to our strategy is as a smaller software company, what we really are is a platform. So we have customers who are building and we're exposing the capability for them to build their own customized workflows. So in a lot of ways, what we are is we are a platform where you're one step away from building your own end-to-end encrypted workflow. So we're seeing people use orchestration with like Swimlane or Phantom or different products to build orchestrated incident response processes. We see executive teams using our platform to distribute sensitive information on an orchestrated regular basis to executives so that it only goes to their phone and it only lives for a certain amount of time on their phone, providing extra you know, layer of security. So you know, the real sales pitch and the real elevator pitch right now is we are a really secure collaboration product. But the future that's really cool is we're giving developers the ability to build their own workflows on top of our platform. And I think that's probably, vision, from a vision standpoint, the most exciting and, and um, fun part of the company. Yeah, that's really cool. I was actually thinking there was probably a big opportunity to do that in our, in our earlier conversation. So that makes a lot of sense that you're kind of offering this primitive, this encryption sort of yeah. secrecy primitive that other folks can build in the workflows. Because you know, as we were talking, I was, I was kind of thinking through lots of different use cases. So uh, that's really great that you guys are onto that. So yeah, I think a, a good example. The one I use a lot is AWS offers Lumberyard for game developers, and they mm-hmm. just say, "Come build. We're giving you the tools. We don't. We're not the best game developers, but we're going to give you the tools to build whatever you want to build." You know, we can't think of every circumstance where people have a need. I mean, obviously, communications is is a commonsensical one, and that's where we started. But we want to give people the ability to just build what they need to build and orchestrate what they need to orchestrate, but to do it and not have to worry about our ability to sort of be the weak link in their process. We just help them make it happen, but we never have access to the data. Very cool. Joel, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Yeah, it was really fun. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.